Hi, and welcome to a brand new episode. This episode, I sat down with the wonderful Ali Watkins. You may know her on Instagram as Patches of OT. Uh, her capstone for her doctorate program was around looking at essentially the the vicarious trauma caused in a forensic nursing setting in an emergency department. And so we delve into that and what lessons may be learned for occupational therapists from that as well. Uh, I will preface this by saying that we do talk broadly about a variety of different traumas that were seen through that emergency department. If that is something that triggers you, then please feel free to skip this one and hang out for the next episode. But uh, it is a very valuable learning experience, and I thank Ali a ton for coming on and having the conversation with me. So let's roll the intro. G'day, my name's Brock Cook and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. That's a great question. Um, I started out at my bachelor's degree studying science, technology, and society, which is a degree pretty much for the unknown. <laughs> I was say, it sounds very broad. And I was going to be a... It is very, very broad. And so my goal in undergrad was to become a pediatric oncologist, a doctor. Um, But I went through a lot of life events um, that made me reconsider. Um, One was in high school. um, I helped a victim drown and it was a friend of mine. And I thought it was a sign of that I need to get into the health field. And, um, I developed PTSD from that situation. I didn't know that I developed PTSD. And so I went years, um, having these symptoms and thinking that there was something wrong with me. Um, and I was like, how can I be a medical doctor if I am triggered by saving someone's life? Um, and so I started reconsidering, you know, what I'm going to do, um, for my career. And my aunt currently at the time was working at an OT program. And she's like, you should do occupational therapy. And I said, I have no idea what that is. I'm not interested. <laughs> no <laughs> one that knows. like PT? Apparently. Like I was the, <laughs> no one knows. And um, she said, you know, they work with kids. They work with adults. Um, they even can work with cancer patients. And I was so interested in that. And I was like, hmm. So I started researching it my senior year of college and, um, you know, I was like, wow, this is sounds exactly what I want to do. You can, you know, then I was considering at the time PT versus OT. And, um, I really liked how OT looked at the mind and, um, you know, mental health part of it. And so, you know, having PTSD and depression and anxiety and going through all that, I was like, OT is more my route and I can probably help people more with those mental health issues um, than their physical bodies in general. And so I applied for OT school. I had to take one year break to take like anatomy courses that I never took um, 
at my undergrad school because um, it was PA and pharmacy driven where I went to school at. And so I had never had the opportunity to, to take the anatomy courses. And so um, that's where my OT journey kind of begins. <laughs> so what was the, why were you, I, I find it, I've not heard of someone so young having such an interesting cancer. Was there a experience that sort of drove you to that? Yes. Um, when I was really young, um, I have a younger brother and we went to daycare and our friend, my brother's best friend, um, developed leukemia. And that was the first time we've heard what they call the C word, which is cancer. And, um, you know, we would go to his house and play with him and he would get sick. And then we would go to the children's hospital here in Indianapolis called Riley's and we would make treats for all the families who were in the oncology department. And so the weekend before he passed, we went and visited him and I went to um, the room next to him, which was a cancer patient and his sister, the, um, the child's sister asked me if we want to play a board game. And I said, okay, why not? And she looked really sad when I entered the room. And then once we started playing, I think it was Candyland, um, a board game. She was so happy. It changed her whole outlook of the day just to have three little girls all in one room in her hospital bed playing a board game. And, um, from there, I said, I want to make kids happy when they're going through such a toll um, of cancer. And so that moment on, I knew that that's kind of what I wanted to do. That's beautiful. Well, thank you. <laughs> I said, just thinking about it right now, I'm like, wow, I forgot about that like story. You know, I don't get to talk about it that often, but it's like, oh, you know, it does like bring it's emotional um mm. but definitely was one of one of the most rewarding things in my life at a young age especially to learn um and develop empathy as a child yeah and that's that's a that's a pretty heavy experience for for any kid to sort of go through that's why i was it's i've not heard of anyone straight out of the gate going like i want to work in oncology and i'm like that's i didn't even know what oncology meant when i was a kid um so i would assume there was some history there but it, it sounds like it was a fairly pivotal moment in your development if, if even if it wasn't to do with your career but Oh, definitely. I would, you know, everybody asked when you're growing up, um, what do you want to be when you would be? And I'd be like pediatric oncologist. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> Everyone else <laughs> wants to so be like specific. a fireman or Superman and you want to be a pediatric oncologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky that with OT, um, you can work with patients. It's, it's hard to get into, I will say. And, um, but you can work with people that, in the oncology department and i hope one day that i could do that i was gonna ask so that's still the 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 goal is to to work in that field i think so um you know now that i've been on rotations there like i worked a lot in outpatient peds and so you see um i've worked with a couple kids that have survived cancer and you know i still 
am very rewarded with that. Um, I feel when you are so compassionate and passionate about a population and then you get to work with them and then your kind of cup is filled um, and you're not as burnt out. And so um, working with them, I'm like, okay, I like this. I also had a placement in hippotherapy and uh, I loved it there. It was so magical to see the kids get on the horses and with all different diagnoses and um, they felt like they were included for the first time that they could do something that other people could do that was hard and challenging. And so I think that is also something I could see myself doing. I'm sure there's probably even areas where you can combine the two. I'd be surprised oh, yeah. if there wasn't given the, just how, oh, yeah. how those, uh, like hypotherapy, how, how hypotherapy works, etc. Oh yeah. Sure. I was going to do my capstone on um, service animals and cancer. There's a big research on how kids with cancer develop a high ACE score due to the medical trauma that they are going through and all the mental health issues that they will continue to have if they survive cancer. Because if you develop cancer at a young age, you're always going to have that fear of when is it going to come back. Yeah. And so being, you know, um, an OT to help kind of work through that trauma. And um, usually when people are impacted at such a young age with trauma, they are, they like lack social skills. They lack um, the ability to um, just have those developmental milestones meet. And so I think it would be super, super interesting to have an OT who specializes in um, animal assisted therapy and then oncology to help with that gap. So with the, just thinking about well, what you just said then about how kids who develop cancer, uh, when they're kids, when they're, when they're kids, obviously, when they're younger, tend to have this sort of constant fear about when it's coming back. Was there any sort of, uh, I guess, similar fear, but vicariously for you going through the experience you had with your brother's friend? Did you sort of develop this like, oh, it could happen to me mm -hmm. kind of, um, I guess, fear at a young age? Oh, oh, totally. I like, I constantly, I actually, um, have found cancer on my body. And so, um, I'm a freckly girl. And so I have to get like my moles and freckles checked. And so I actually, a couple of years ago, they found cancer. Um, it was like the first level. And so I was very lucky that they were able to remove it, but every time going like being involved in such a heavy case at a young age and seeing how the family grieved and dealt with their child having cancer I always was concerned that you know I was going to get cancer or you know I guess I was traumatized by you know if I would ever get it myself or my brother um but then, you know, I still have the fear of like, okay, I need to get my moles checked. It's been about a year and I've already had, you know, one incident. So um, I definitely, and I have um, severe like, stomach issues. And so my family has a history of stomach cancer and um, IBS. And so I constantly have to get that checked out. So I, yeah, I guess I've never even thought about that. I guess I am a worrier that I will you know, one day also get cancer. Cause I guess You're asking so many great questions. <laughs> that's what I do. No, I, I guess yeah. <laughs> like what, what we're planning to, to talk about, I'm kind of 
I'm always curious about if there's any sort of or what the the roots of those kinds of ideas are and um we we want to have a look at your your capstone which is around sort of essentially vicarious trauma of people in in emergency departments um obviously we can sort of have a look and see where your interest in oncology sort of stems from but i also wondered whether there was some kind of um root of interest in sort of vicarious trauma and it sounds like there possibly might be a a couple of instances where that may have, have have stemmed from oh yes i have a very high a score um and if if you're not familiar with ACE scores, I'm sure you are. It's adverse childhood experiences. And so if you have a higher ACE score of four, you are more likely to develop cancer, or, you know, chronic illnesses as you get older or just unable to emotionally regulate. And so I, Allie, cannot emotionally regulate <laughs> that well when I am um, come intact with stimuli that I think is defensive or um, that you know, my flight or fight system goes into action, which it happens frequently due to my high A score in the past. And so I have to constantly be working on take a deep breath in and out before I react to a situation because sometimes I react and it's kind of overreacting. And so I have to really work on my social awareness and emotional regulation. And, you know, that's taken a lot of time. Um, but that's just how my brain was wired as a child. And, you know, it was going to my flight or fight system, my central nervous system, rather than my prefrontal cortex as a child. And so I'm still working on it. <laughs> did, you, did you, is this, uh, all stuff that you've like taught yourself or did you see any other profession during your childhood or, or recently, I don't know, um, to help develop those sort of, uh, regulation skills? Oh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I feel like trauma, if you have a high A score, it usually, I don't know, I feel like trauma follows you everywhere it goes, or you're more sensitive to the world, or maybe you have a low re resilience um, score. And, you know, I feel like I'm building, I'm constantly rebuilding my resilience, um, because I started off very low. Um, and so, Around college, I didn't really have a social support system, meaning like my family, we did not have a close relationship at all. Um, I just felt really alone in the world. And so I started listening to Brene Brown and on her um, research on connection, empathy, and vulnerability. And I will tell you, her work was life-changing. I would listen and re-listen to her TED Talks and to her audiobooks. I even ran a marathon um, just listening to all of her work and I would start to practice those things. And now I'm starting to listen to her podcast and um, every you know person that she has on there, I'm like buying their books and doing all the self-help uh, uh, situations. But when it comes to neuro, I've definitely felt like I taught myself um, with like the neural pathways and why I am the way I am. And um, with my capstone now, I, you know, wanted to learn about trauma-informed care. So I honestly, I could learn about myself and how I deal with things. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of why I went in that way now that I think about it. <laughs> Thinking is good. That's what we're all about here. Thinking is great. <laughs> 
So <laughs> let's delve into it. So what 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 is your capstone about? So I originally was supposed to do a capstone on pediatric oncology, um, working with kids and service dogs and working on social participation. That did not happen due to COVID. Um, the social participation um, piece kind of knocked that out. Um, but, so I had to kind of dig around um, last minute in order to graduate on time. And so I was between racial injustice, um, since that is a huge problem, especially here in America. And I was going to maybe go to police academies and talk to um, future police officers about um, implicit bias and how to work with kids or adults that have sensory issues or that may have, have autism. Um, then I was going to do a more love on the spectrum kind of thing on that. It's a series on Netflix say, it's not that a I was TV work on like kids with disabilities dating. Um, that was already taken though. And I was like, dang it, I want to be original. <laughs> and then so it got me to the place of, I'm like, oh, OTs really do a lot of work in human trafficking or that's a new spike that's coming up. Um, I guess you could say trend. Um, and so I was really interested in that. So I looked at the hospitals around me and I saw that there was a hospital that had an organization that helped victims or patients who with domestic violence, sexual abuse, or if they, their child was going through something and they suspect something. And so they are called forensic nurses. Now, ooh, I could do something that, you know, could help me learn more about this population and bring something to them. So I talked to the site mentor and she says, we are burnt out um, with the COVID pandemic um, and the rise in quarantine um, domestic violent cases because people are stuck at home. We are experiencing tremendous turnover. Um, we're mentally fatigued. We're seeing so much. We're reading these cases, uh, multiple cases over and over again. We're seeing deaths, adults and kids, and we um, need help. And so I was like, well, let me try. <laughs> so I am currently creating a educational series on um, burnout, vicarious trauma, and occupational balance to help with burnout in the, with the forensic nurses in the emergency room. Your interest areas just shock me. They're so out there. So winding back a little bit, human trafficking, where did you get that interest area? I know. Um, so... I think it kind of all stems back from, you know, I created Patches of OT because as I was learning about OT, I was learning that there's all these different out there populations that we could work with. And so as I was doing my capstone, I was like, oh my goodness, human trafficking is a big issue. Like I have a couple friends that are police officers and they we're like, oh my goodness, like this is a huge issue. Like one of them had to, you know, bring a patient to the hospital and she was being human trafficked. And it's more of an issue than we think of it is. And it's not human trafficking is it not exactly what we think of it is. You know, we think of uh, the movie Taken. I think that's the movie called where Probably you go. Where all of my knowledge around human trafficking comes from. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but it could be more um it's so subtle like um 
someone is luring you and then they may be um, paying you or giving you nice things just to make you feel well, or, um, you know, there's called recruiters and they'd be, you know, other females or males that try trying to pay you more money and you're being human trafficked and you don't really know it. Um, you can think of the Epstein cases, those um, females are being human trafficked and not knowing it. So it gets really deep. Um, and when we have patients come in, you don't want to say, hey, we think you're being human trafficked because people will take that really offensively. And so, um, we have to kind of like go around the corner and um, tell them that, you know, what we think it might be happening to them. So I think it's fascinating. I just think, um, I don't know, I maybe like when I see problems in the world, I want to jump in and try to help out. And so I'm like, oh, human trafficking, what can I do to help? And what can I do to learn? And um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think one of those, like, again, me included, uh, if you're, relationship with the concept is from say movies like taken and, and there's a couple other ones but I, I feel like some people would be shocked to hear that it's actually a big problem in the states um because oh. that like if you, if you think that it is solely and again like i said i'm included um thought that it was solely you know people being stolen from an airport and drugged and sold in an auction uh probably I couldn't picture that sort of really happening in America or like in the country um, as something that yes. you know, would happen overseas or while you're traveling again, probably just because of the movie. Yeah. They say, um, so fun fact about Indianapolis. Um, fun fact. I, said, when a Super I get the sense this isn't going to be a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So when the Super Bowl happens um, here in the United States, it is the biggest form of sex trafficking because everybody's coming together and that, that's where it happens the most. And so when Indianapolis hosted the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, people, Airbnb was started becoming a new thing. And so that's where you can rent out houses for really cheap. And these were turning into um, houses for human trafficking. And so that's why they've stopped in the future um, less renting out houses during the Super Bowl because of what happened in Indianapolis. And I just I'm like, wow, like they had to stop something in the system because of a huge issue that wasn't even being talked about. I've never even heard of that. <laughs> mm hmm. I didn't either until I went to my field work and they had like such a rise in cases around the Super Bowl. And so I guess it's actually very common, but that's nuts. A fun fact that people don't know. Yeah. See, I've heard um, <laughs> not about human trafficking, but I've heard uh, sports events. I can't remember. It was a sport event here. It might have been like a grand final of some code of football. I can't remember which one um, was the there was a massive spike in domestic violence during the game uh and they were saying that it's essentially because people were locked down and were drinking a lot more than you know normal that kind of stuff um but yeah i have not heard of wow. it being like set up as a that would have to be like a deliberate like you couldn't accidentally human traffic someone. I'm assuming it would have to be like, especially if you Airbnb stuff and planning. It would have to be a very deliberate sort of action. Yeah. 
very much so. Yeah, it's, I think it's increasing too. Um, I haven't looked at the full stats on human trafficking here in the States, but you know, it's becoming more of a hot topic and um, a movement. And so that's great to hear about. But when the problems come up from higher authorities or people with money, how do we defeat that yeah. from the bottom up? Yeah, I've seen a few people uh, discussing it recently. And again, I've just gone, oh, they just, they care about what's going on in, I don't even know, I don't even know what country that movie was in. Um, but yeah, I <laughs> never actually considered that it was something that might be happening in the States. But I guess when you broaden the definition oh. and highlight sort of what else it includes, now I can picture, okay, yeah, that I can see that happening. Oh, yes. Or, you know, we have many cases where um, females are being um, drugged um, and, you know, they're being drugged by other females um, to, you know, create the human trafficking. They're all part of a system. Um, And so we see that a lot and they just don't know, you know, because they don't remember. And then um, it just keeps happening. So it's just it's so unfortunate. It it is so I've learned so much at my capstone and seen so much. I I realize now why these nurses are experiencing, you know, so much trauma and it's heavy. (laughs) Yeah. So you were looking at um, these sort of very traumatic cases coming in through an emergency department and the impact that that was having on the nursing staff there. What... I guess, and yeah, we'll we'll give a trigger warning to people, but what sorts of things were they seeing come through the doors? You can see about anything. And so um, I guess the most cases that they see are sexually sexual assault. And so that could be in adults and pediatrics. And we see, unfortunately, a lot of those cases, especially in pediatrics. Um, And so that's our number one. The second is domestic violence. Um, It's rising due to quarantine and people being locked down. And that is what they're calling the silent pandemic of the increase of domestic violence. And um, whether that's um, partners hitting each other or um, just random. And then we also see um, gunshot wounds. We see stabbings. We see vehicle accidents and... um, you know, any kind of accident that could have been done by someone else, whether that was intentional or by accident. Um, So what the forensic nurses do is when they get a case, so we call it a trauma code one, and um, they'll ring over the emergency department and we'll get buzzed and um, we'll give a little case of what's going on. And um, for instance, we had a gunshot wound come in. And so we would run down there, wait for the person to be delivered in the trauma room and then um, the forensic nurse would take pictures as they're doing the medical assessment to make sure that this person is still surviving and is going to be alive and so they like have special cameras and um, a ruler to kind of measure where the hmm. you know where the Give wounds are at and then we size. would collect the yeah yeah and then we would take their clothing and take pictures of that and um, measure, you know, wound size or blood stains. And then we would bag it up in an evidence um, bag and then seal 
it up with our initials to make sure that no one breaks the seal. We would um, take the bullet and we wouldn't call it a bullet. Um, they would call it something medical. So you couldn't be taken to court <laughs> by it. Foreign object. Um, so once the OR got the bullet, yes, a foreign metallic object. <laughs> um, and they would put it in a box and do the same thing. And then we bag that all up and give it to um, the legal team from there. And so all the nurses can go to court and be sus- subpoenaed. Um, and so they have to be really careful in their documentation and say exactly what the patient says. And so it's really interesting. We've had multiple cases come in and it's just so eye-opening. And, you know, we've seen everything that you can see of gunshot wounds, stabbings, people that have been stabbed but don't want to come in. So it's like four-day-old stab and we're like, oof. Um, really bad cases to where you see, yeah, patients pass away, Um little kid that's the hardest is little kids passing away uh, yeah those those days are heavy and we've had I've been I've been there and seen it um, and that's really unfortunate but yeah so they see about anything <laughs> so with the uh, obviously the the forensic nurse is a different position to you know the regular uh, like nurses in ED obviously something like a gunshot wound there's a fair chance that that's going to be something that requires forensic involvement but how do they decipher like uh, obviously some dv cases the injuries or the wounds especially if the person's not uh i guess coming forth and telling staff how it happened some of them could look very similar to you know wounds you get you know in other instances that aren't dv um how do they know like when or to get involved Yes, that's a great question. Um, so since there's a, such a rise in domestic violence cases, there's so many times where um, a nurse that's working on a patient, um, if they slip something out and say, oh, you know, I didn't really fall. I was pushed out a window, um, which has happened. And then they're like bringing us up on the buzzer and saying, hey, we possibly have this going on. Can you talk to them? And if they consent, we could, you know, um, provide our services. And so that's a huge part of it too, is that, you know, they could tell their story to us or refuse to, but um, they also have the right to either go, like if they want pictures to be taken, we can help them out legally in that sense. But uh, yeah, if they don't want to, then we step away. Um, and usually that's what we also see too, is people who are in domestic violence cases, they go through the same, like, they're in the cycle of trauma and they go back to, you know, their abuser. And a lot of the times we're educating our patients, you know, Hey, this is a vicious cycle that you're in. And, you know, if you think this is bad, it can be worse. And, but using a lot of trauma informed care, we're here for you. Um, we believe you. Um, we are really concerned for you. Do you have a safe place to go? And so, um, Unfortunately, you just see that a lot. It's like, no, I can take care of myself. I can do this. And and it, and it's sad because the cycle is so real and um, it happens all the time. So as you, like you spoke about earlier, like someone who has a high A score um, has you know, experienced different kinds of trauma and that sort of stuff through her own life. How did coming into contact or obviously you you i mean you volunteered for that position so you knew what i 
assume you actually, I assume you knew what was involved. How did that, did what, did what you thought beforehand would be involved, was it the same or was it better, worse? How did it play out when you actually started? So it's definitely glamorized um, being a forensic nurse and people are like, ooh, like NCIS um, or, you know, we're going to take photos and this is going to be super cool. Um, but I knew what I was getting into because I, in the back of my head, also had to think about my PTSD. And, you know, I haven't been triggered lately, um, but my PTSD is saving someone or when something really traumatic comes, usually in the back of my head is like, how can I save them? How can I save them? Because that's what I had to do for a child that was completely purple. And so, um, you know, I was mentally preparing myself. Am I going to be able to be resilient and, you know, be able to do this? Or is my PTSD going to limit me um, in my abilities to be even at this site? And so I've been kind of pushing myself um, when we have someone come in in the emergency room and they are they've lost both legs because of a vehicle accident and you see mangled body parts it's I instead of being scared or having um what what usually is PTSD side effects which is like racing heart sweating you feel like you're going to pass out I'm at the window looking at this, oh, where's that body part going? Are they going to amputate? Is it going to be a lower amputee or an upper amputee? Is it going to, you know, and so I am so proud of myself that it's been such a long journey for me um, to overcome and get my body regulated to this environment that I'm now stable in because I was terrified I would never be able to be in this highly intensive medical practice because of my past trauma. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't prepared to see, um, you know, children being the way they're treated now. I, I didn't expect to see that a lot, um, but it's an everyday occurrence. And it's, that's where it gets me because, um, you know, you, people choose to be in a relationship, you know, whether it's violent or, you know, not. And, and I know mentally, it's hard to get out of those relationships. I, I totally get that. A child is, you know, they don't have any safety net. And so um, that that is hard to see. Very, very hard to see. The So something I, I saw a lot and experienced a lot within like mental health practice is there were things that say at the start of my career that you'd see and you'd be like, oh, shocked bit sort of caught off guard and then after a while you kind of get desensitized to it is there i'm assuming there would be uh, a similar phenomenon probably to a much more extreme degree within the staff that work in these these trauma centers in these emergency departments is that something you've noticed i think to a point um because in the research there is a lot about how ED nurses or forensic nurses um, can develop very bad vicarious trauma from just reading um, a case on a piece of paper. And my site mentor, that's all she does if she's not seeing patients, is she's reading these stories. And there's a difference between seeing something, a patient come in and like kind of seeing what they're, what's on their body, but to physically sit down and read their whole story is another, is another effect. Like you're reading like 
their emotions and what they went through and um, how they survived and what they might go back to. And then the biggest part is with the emergency room is you don't see the outcome. So this patient may go home and then you're now worried about them because like, oh shoot, are they going back to that bad environment? Did they survive? Um, if it's a kid, you know, we really hope that child's, you know, services took them out that situation, but we, we never find that out. And so, or did the police take action? Are they going to, you know, um, put the boyfriend in jail for beating the crap out of this kid? Um, you don't hear any of that. And so you often see the nurses do a lot of digging, like, you know, like if they, you know, if a police officer comes in, um, they may say, Hey, you worked on this case. Uh, this person got locked up. We just wanted to let you know that. And they're like, yes, it's a full circle um, experience, which is what they're lacking. They're not getting that full circle confirmation that that patient is safe. They're constantly worrying, even if it's subconsciously, they're worried about that. And then you stack on the, you get so many patients in a day that you're like worrying about all these people. <laughs> so I think that's the hard part. I feel like they will never, the the nurses will never just become immune to it. They might be immune to like doing the pelvic exams and going through the motions of that, but yep. to know the backstories, so more, super hard. More uh, desensitized to the, I guess the the clinical aspect more than the experience yes. of, yeah. And that's uh, that. Yeah, because that feedback loop is something that. I again, I've also, and I've, I've said to many people, uh, the experience of working in an acute mental health unit is you only ever see people at their worst, and you never see, you know, the other ninety percent of their life kind of thing, and you do get kind of caught up in that. Uh, I was going to say a drama bubble, but it's not. It's uh, you. You get sort of not desensitized but you get kind of in this mindset that this is it this is mental health when you're really only seeing that sort of you know top five percent of people at their worst and you never see anything else um and i suspect again to a much more extreme degree that working in an ed would be that no one ever comes into ed to go hey i'm feeling awesome thanks guys um if they're in there it's generally because something's gone yeah, really bad <laughs> Yes, yes, that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> so, what? How, how long we or how long have you been in there for? I am there. I'm there for fourteen weeks. Okay. So pretty, pretty long, and so I definitely had to consider my own mental health because even though I've become resilient and with my PTSD, um, you know, I do go to a counselor and um, I do checkups, you know, whether it's with my husband or social support or um, with the forensic nurses there, they've even said having someone else there. Cause usually it's one nurse per like shift and they work 24 hours. Um, just having someone there to kind of vent to is nice. And so they do uh three twelves so that, the place I'm working at right now is constantly open for 24 hours. And so usually they're just by themselves working um, and they can kind of vent and kind of get out what they're feeling and their emotions. Even so that would be interesting too. It's like, yeah, need to even, hire I'd be interested person. to see what the effect is of just working solo shifts. Cause I think I've, I, I have 
done that in one role, but it was only like there was some overlap. So I think it was like there was a couple of hours in each shift where you were on your own, but that was it. And even then, you hated those hours. <laughs> like, can't imagine constantly working. Like, yeah, there's other people around, but like you said, there's there's no one that you can sort of like vent yeah. to or is in the same position as you are. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine just the stress of doing that, let alone everything else on top of it would not be, that would, that would count me out anyway. Oh, yes. And that's like one of their biggest complaints, you know, is with burnout. It's like, man, we can't even talk to anybody about these cases or what we just witnessed or, you know, them, they can talk to me because they're like, this is what I'm doing and this is how I, and, you know, technically it's just them going through their emotions and talking about it out loud and i'm like okay cool <laughs> even if they like repeat themselves i'm like get it all out <laughs> yeah but then just nice. like you said just having someone else there uh can be a massive support and that goes for anyone like anyone who's looking at burnout no matter what field they're in one of the big things that i've seen with people that are getting burned out is the lack of connection or the lack of social or like professional support or like clinical supports um yeah that's that even just on paper that's just a recipe for burning people out let's put them in probably the most traumatic oh health yeah, setting and let's that. put them in there on their own <laughs> yes exactly it is so i can't even imagine you know them doing this and so uh they did just hire someone else to kind of work a midship this is the first time they've done it and so she started last week. And so, you know, that's going to be helpful because she'll be there with someone. And so that will kind of help with that loneliness piece. And so that's new. So yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to see how that turns out. So, But usually they have such a high turnover. I was going to say, so they've had such a high turnover. Have you, know, have you witnessed that in your time there already? I have not uh, witnessed that. Um, I, when I first started, they were, um, they had a new nurse starting as well. And so I was watching her observe and learn. And as I was watching her observe and learn, I was told this is the third nurse in the last year. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. So this is the issues we're having now. Um, and usually it's because the nurses just can't handle um what they're seeing you know they think of oh I'm going to go I'm scenes and I'm going to take pictures no you're actually going to stay in the hospital and you're going to be taking pictures of body parts all day and seeing all this stuff and they're like oh this is not the field I want to be in yeah and then they figure out that they're alone and then um, you know they're going through and especially in the research shows that forensic nurses who have past trauma high A scores they are more likely to get burnout faster because they are um, going to think about their past trauma when they're dealing with a patient. And so they, they don't have that much resilience when it comes to this field. And so my capstone, I've been collecting their ACE scores and kind of seeing, okay, where, it, where are you and do you feel this way? Which is really interesting in itself. So are they, are they screened before they go into the job? They are not. Um, their site mentor is so awesome. She's, you know, super personable. Um, but I don't think they are, which I think that would be a great thing to add to that um, position. So with my capstone, I do have them do a burnout 
uh, scale and I do have them do a resilience scale to see if they have high ACE with or high burnout with a low resilience, which is a recipe for burnout or, you know, vice versa. And then, um, then we do an A score during the educational series. And then near the end of the educational series, we'll do a retake of those burnout scale and the resilience score to see if they differ. But who knows? <laughs> so the ACE, I'm not, I'm not familiar. I mean, I know what it is, but I'm not familiar with it. It's not something I've ever mm -hmm. done or had any involvement with. So when is that? Uh, like obviously not in this situation, but when would that normally be administered to people? Like people, like you've had your A score done, obviously, but when is it a pediatric thing? Uh, or is it something you do later in life, or what? Like when is it actually usually rolled out? Honestly, that's a great question because I don't feel like a lot of um, hospitals here, maybe in the U.S., um, don't utilize it that much. I know when I went and. I had to seek it out. So I learned about it and I was like, Ooh, what's my A score? Google. Okay. Oh, here's my A score. That's not so good. That explains a lot of things. Um, but when I recently went to um, my mental health, I got a new mental health doctor. They did an A score screen and I was like, Ooh, that's cool. I know what that is without telling me. And mm -hmm. then when I went to my new primary doctor, um, year ago they had me fill out an a score and oh. they didn't tell me it was an a score but i knew the question like, okay that's interesting so i feel like people are implementing more but it, i think ot's especially like pediatrics um you know or mental health settings they should you know that would be a good it's a free resource that you could see what the a score is and you know the questions are like have you seen parents hit each other at home that's like one of the questions yes or no um, have you, um, witnessed a loved one pass away? Yes or no. And so, um, those add up and then, you know, you'll find if you're over four, which a lot of people are over four, <laughs> then you're, you're, <laughs> have a lot of trauma suppressed in your, yeah, most people, are. Yeah. <laughs> most people are less four. Um, and so, um, so is it, is it looking at a specific time frame? So, like, if I was to fill mine out yes, now, I am I thinking about when I was under 10 or am I, like, when is the, what's the time frame? Yeah. Like? It is zero to 18. Okay. So, um, yeah, anything that happened, like, around before under 18. And so, um, I think that's usually set at the top, too. So, it's really easy to fill out, um I hope you fill one out after talking. Just Google it. And I'll just... fill one out. I don't. I, I don't think there's going to be too it's... much in it, but I'll. I'm curious. I'll definitely fill one out. I am curious about the age of eighteen, though. That seems rather arbitrary. I don't know. I think it's because like your teenager. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why eighteen. Because I would have. Thought I don't know if it's uh, their it... person who studied. Yeah, I, I would have thought. Sort of early 20s given that our sort of values and that sort of stuff are, are continuing to be shaped up until that point and tr any kind of trauma is yeah. still gonna have a big impact on you know how you see the world how you shape your lens up until sort of that point i mean it's still gonna have an impact afterwards but it's gonna have a bigger impact because you're still forming those values that value system up until that point it doesn't sort of go oh 18 yep and there's nothing like in the States, I don't yeah. think there's any sort of 
big thing that does happen after 18. Like, I, I'm thinking, like, legally. So, like, in Australia, the, the drinking age is 18. Like, that's probably the biggest thing that happens at 18. Um, other than that, oh, which... Wow. Other than that, like, there's nothing else that really happens. I'm still an immature brat at 19. Like, it, that didn't change overnight. <laughs> That's true. That's a great question. I don't know why the cutoff is 18. But now I'm going to have to look it up when I'm down here. <laughs> no, I just wonder whether you like if you ran it, even though it's standardized to 18. Um, I, a lot of the time, those kinds of things are just because, oh, this is who we had access to kind of thing. Um, but I wonder whether like if I ran it with someone who was or like if I ran it on myself thinking about up until sort of, I don't know, for me, it's probably later because I'm immature. But so the 24-ish, 23-ish, um, whether or not like the results would be invalidated. I mean, obviously, they wouldn't be as standardized oh, yeah. as if I just filled it out based on my first 18 years. But yeah, it's interesting. Yes. Very interesting. Because yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not fully up on the trauma thing. Obviously, I know a bit about sort of trauma-informed care. I would hardly not even remotely say that I'm an expert in it. Um, I've worked with a lot of people who've experienced trauma and that kind of thing. Um, but sort of the very few things that I do know are that trauma is one of the only things that will change your value system after it's sort of concreted in. Um, and to me, I'm like, that's that's a pretty big thing. Like, <laughs> You can literally come out of something with a completely okay. different perspective on life, which previously That's wouldn't right. have been possible um which is why i That's just find right. the the age of it that's why it sort of went 18 why 18 like it's not like we just all of a sudden become super resilient after 18 or anything so true and a lot of uh the hard things come in our 20s whether that's you know grandparents passing away or hard relationship or domestic violence within our own relationships yeah uh, moving especially people, especially, people, right. especially people that are like people are living at home later you know previously it might have been that you know at 18 was when people finished high school and moved out of home like that might have been a big transition period but people aren't doing that so much nowadays they're living at home until sort of after university so they might be living at home until 25 30 some cases um so i think uh, yeah i wonder whether I mean, again, I'm basing this off not knowing anything about this assessment, but just those sort of, those like very concrete uh, stipulations always flag for me in my head. I'm like, I wonder why that is. Because some cases, in some of them I have found, yeah. like, oh, I have learned that, you know, oh, this is done at this to this age because this is what we found. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Whereas, yeah, this I'm like, oh, I wonder why it's 18 and not, you know, why not 16? Like, why? Mm-hmm interesting yeah that's good that's good i will have good to thought. do mine i haven't even thought about that i'm like oh it goes to 18 <laughs> how long does it take to do oh. it literally takes um like probably two minutes you should take it all right let's do it now then did you find it i did i didn't score anything nice i was trying to wow just, nothing I'm like this. That's great. That, that was a flop. I didn't get anything. <laughs> I was trying to find this, That's in, amazing. this in this uh, thing whether it explained why the 18. Because it actually doesn't say 
I don't even know what this website is. Ace is too high. Uh, it sounds like a blog post thing, but it's got all the questions in here. Um, but it doesn't actually say, like, refer to... Oh, yeah, prior to your 18th birthday. There it is. Um, yeah, I, I, I scored there. zero. Which I guess I probably should be happy about. Wow, that's amazing. Yes, you should. <laughs> that's amazing. I'm like taking it again right now. There's 10 questions. Is there 10 questions for you? Uh, yes. Okay, good. That's it. Researchers came with the ACE score to explain a person's risk of chronic disease. Think of it as cholesterol score for childhood's toxic stress. That's a very uh, layman's way of explaining wow. it. I like that. Mm-hmm. With an ACE score of four or more, things start to get serious. The likelihood of chronic pulmonary lung disease increases 390%. Hepatitis, 240%. Depression, that 460%. Attempted suicide, 1,220%. Okay, so just a slight increase then. Far wow. out. Wow. That's a big increase. So are you finding some of are you finding the nurses that you worked with in ED are they scoring high? Oh yeah, oh. they're scoring yeah. All of them have a very high A score. What do you reckon the average would be if you had yeah. to like guess? Obviously, not looking at the data right now, but if you had to guess, what would you say the average would be? Let me see. Hmm, I would probably say like a seven. Oh wow! Okay. That's very high. I only say that because mine is a seven. <laughs> My score is a seven. I'm like, dang. It's it's very common. It's so unfortunate. So is the resi I think. And I'm, I'm learning, like talking to if, the forensic. I wonder if this is the resilience questionnaire you're using too. I just found it. Similar questions, but it's like a oh, Likert yes. scale instead. It's like definitely mm -hmm. true, probably not, not sure, probably not true, definitely not true. And there's 14 questions. Yes. Yep. Interesting. So. If you have a high A. No, you are. Oh, sorry. If you have a high A score and a high resilience, then you are going to have a better outcome. What if I have no A score? Which is makes sense. And a high resilience. I probably don't have Then you resilience. are thriving. I'll probably get no resilience <laughs> as well. You're thriving. <laughs> well, until your 18th birthday, that is. Yeah, the, true. The trauma you had after. <laughs> and then my life <laughs> took over. No, I, I yes. consider myself to have had a... Compared to a lot of people that I've met and spoken to through work and out of work, I, I consider my life to have been fairly easy by comparison so i'm definitely privileged in that way that's amazing um so the the nurses that you were that you're working with are scoring very high are you seeing like are you looking at the like because this sounds like it was sort of aimed at uh chronic disease are you aligning that with any experiences they've had of chronic disease or mainly just looking at burnout or is burnout classes a, a chronic um i'm disease? mostly just looking at burnout that's right. And that is, that's exactly what I was about to say. Like 
these nurses do have a lot of health problems. Um, you know, they, but they're very proactive, which I think I find that fascinating. These nurses that I'm talking to, they are seeking out, not just like, um, Western medicine. They're also looking at like functional medicine doctors. They are seeing counselors that are like specialized in trauma. Um, but this is all that they have to pay for out of pocket, you know, just in order to function and thrive at work. Um, but they also have high, high A scores. So they got to talk about, you know, those traumas that they're, you know, suppressing. Um, when you look at burnout, we often suppress. And when we continue to suppress, um, we get stuck in the burnout cycle. And it's not until the action plan, whether that's um, exercising, which is the biggest thing that you can do, uh, or move your body if you don't like to exercise. Um, breathing, just working on your central nervous system to get it back in, in track. Um, you know, then, you know, you see chronic illness happen. Um, in fact, our, you know, one of my, the forensic nurses that I work with, um, she has extreme hormone imbalance. And when you look at people who have a lot of trauma or experience a lot of trauma, what's happening is when you're going to flight or fight response, you're developing a lot of cortisol, which is your stress hormone. And that's pumping through your body continuously until you resolve that trauma. So if you're suppressing it, it's continuing to go and it goes to your adrenal glands, which is your thyroid. So you often see a lot of females, especially have thyroid issues. And so right now she's talking to her doctor right now to figure out how to balance those hormones out. Um, but you can cause a lot of function to like your kidneys and your liver. If you are always going through cortisol. And then if you're always stressed out, your body's also trying to pump, um, you know, it's adrenaline that you're going through. Um, so you're just so wired up and, you know, you can't, your body's not being able to function. Yes. Constantly. So I often see that like people are like, yeah, my hormones are so out of whack. It's like, wow, your cortisol levels, I better super high. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, actually just saw my functional medicine doctor and they are. <laughs> yeah. Cause I think that's, so that's I find that really that interesting. A lot of people don't really think about when it comes to to burnout and that sort of stuff and and trauma in general too like especially a sort of long-term trauma not sort of acute trauma um is that the one of the bigger issues and the reason that some interventions like mindfulness meditation and stuff work is that your body's constantly on like there's no downtime there's no recovery time and that's why you also get these mm -hmm. feelings of fatigue and brain fog is because your body's been just on. Um, and I feel like that's that's one of the things that people don't, like they, they, they start trying to treat the individual sort of symptoms. They're like, oh, I'm tired, so I'll sleep more. Like, yeah, okay, that's going to help a little bit, but it's not sort of mm -hmm. helping the root cause. Um, so it needs to be not just that you need to actually do something that's going to, you know, stop you from being so fatigued. So you need to address that always on aspect, um, which, you know, is hormonal based, but I, I think that's, that's a, that's a way and, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming this is probably where you were sort of looking with your, your capstone, but that's a, a place that I think OTs can really have a big impact. Oh, 100%. And that's what I'm learning a lot with this capstone is that these 
nurses, um, of course, they've had medical issues because they're suppressing all their trauma. So what I'm going in is I'm going in and saying, okay, look at all this trauma that you're suppressing and look how it's affecting your body. That's the first series. And it shows how your body can be affected by trauma using the Body Keep Score um, book. I can't remember the author. It's like Van Bezel. And then um, the second educational series about burnout and how your body keeps score and how you get stuck in the burnout cycle and the health effects that happen with that. And then the last part, which I think OTs can have a huge impact in is occupational balance and what we need to do versus what we want to do and making sure that we are fully balanced in order to, you know, be the best practitioners we can be or best forensic nurses we can be. And um, I think we as OTs often even forget about our own occupational balance. And I know for sure I have. And so learning through this, it's like, okay, I need to make sure for myself, I need eight hours of sleep in order to function as a human being. I need to move my body even when I don't want to move my body um, and not for appearance reasons. I need to do it for my own mental health. Um, I need to, you know, I've been taking a lot of deep breaths lately um, when I'm overwhelmed or when I don't know what to say something. And that has helped out so much. Deep breathing has helped me out personally. Um, what else have I been doing? I know, I guess just like if I'm super overwhelmed, I go for a walk. Um, if you have stomach issues, um, if you are triggered by stress or a stressful situation, you often get, I don't know if you ever had this, like when your like heart drops and maybe your stomach feels upset and you, you just feel, um, a bit of a nausea. I don't know. Have feeling. you ever experienced that? Yeah. Yes. And I learned that's part of our vagus nerve and it's called the dorsal vagus nerve and it goes down to um, our stomach and affects like all of our organs down there. And so I, like, if you like are super traumatized or just have a, everything stresses you out, that's constantly being flared. And so um, I'm like, man, I got to figure that out. So I need to start deep breathing like every day <laughs> at a certain time to just calm my sns system <laughs> yep. yeah yeah because and, and there's certain techniques that i've heard i'm, I'm not sort of fully okay with the techniques but I, there are certain techniques that i've heard that you know are able to tap into or i think one i saw the other day or heard on a podcast actually um was like it was something to do with diaphragmatic breathing and how that it may even be tapping into that that particular nerve um, and is able to help suppress those sorts of feelings and that sort of thing. Um, I, I could be I could be wrong, but I've heard of techniques, specific breathing techniques, to essentially help different things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I learned through my capstone because I'm we teach about you know deep breathing and with our patients, but when we actually do that, when we breathe in, we are um, activating all of our muscles, um, and then. Um, so we activate our SNS system, our sympathetic, sympathetic nervous system. And then when we take a deep breath out, we activate our PNS system, our peripheral nervous system, um, which will regulate. And then that's the PNS kind of calms our body after stress or release. So we're activating our, you know, response to stress and then deactivating it. So we're learning how to change our heart rate variable was what I've learned, which I thought was super interesting, like knowing the science behind it in order to kind of teach the patient or the nurses, like, this is why this is, I feel like 
my brain's always thinking that way. Like, why am I doing deep breathing? Because deep breathing sounds like a waste of time to me. And then when I learned about it, I was like, oh, wow, because this system works this and that system works that. And so, you know, if I have a patient that's curious, I can kind of explain that to them, which the nurses are. <laughs> so it's not just hyperventilating and getting a head spin. That's right. <laughs> it's not that at all. So you said at the start that you you were, I think you said you were putting together like a training thing for the nurses. Mm-hmm. So, what, so they're doing. What are you, what are you actually going to teach them? What's 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 involved in your your training course thing for them? My training, my boot camp works out as a. Um, the first one is about how trauma <laughs> trauma works out. Um, in our body and so um, they like did an educational so I want them to learn what it is and then they do a therapeutic activity so like the first one I believe they identified um, where in their body feels tight where in their body feels foggy by like coloring Um, so using that self-awareness and mindfulness of where our body actually hurts Um, they also had to write a um, word that describes their journey and then they pinned it up on the wall um, to kind of build community so people know um, what their word is and you know maybe their journey was a lot harder than others Um, we did another activity but I can't remember what that activity was and then the second series is all about education on burnout and then I made like a visual reference representation of uh, a burnout cycle and um, their activity was a creating a burnout scale from one to 10, one being your absolute worst. Um, and like for, for instance, an example, the worst time of my life when I was super burnt out, I went to the ER not knowing that I was actually suffering from a panic attack or anxiety attack. I thought I was having a stroke and my anxiety is just so bad. Um, my anxiety is just so bad that, um, you know, I will lose my vision or I'll lose sensation in my hands. And, um, I didn't know that was even a thing. Yeah. It was super scary. Um, I had to like crawl into the emergency room. So for knowing that that's my lowest of my low that I, you know, could go or thinking thoughts, um, that's number one where 10 is like, I'm feeling really happy and, you know, super duper. So that's, um, been, you know, that was helpful for me in creating awareness for them. Um, and then the last one is about occupational balance. And so I taught them what occupational balance is. And then um, I made a kind of timeline of their day to kind of fill out, are we resting? Are we doing what we need to do? Are we needing what we want to do? So they're like kind of scheduling. And then the last part of the project is creating a video for them. So I'm going to make them not make them, but I'm going to have them, um, they're going to get a list of questions about COVID and the silent pandemic and their thoughts. And this is a um, therapeutic like reflection piece. And so they're going to write down what they think or what they've experienced. And then I'm going to video record them with their consent. Then I'm going to edit the video and they're going to, for my dissemination plan is that they're going to all watch it together and kind of learn and kind of build resilience and be like, wow, we can do hard things. We got through this insane year of yeah crazy cases of domestic violence the pandemic and so yeah that's awesome and are these that's been i'm assuming nice. these are resources that will sort of exclusively be for that 
particular department. They're not something you're going to release to everyone else. I don't know. I was thinking about that. Um, I think it would be helpful for a lot of people, but I have a lot of imposter syndrome. It took me a while to give it, get out my skilled nursing facility guide um, that I, you know, just recently put out. But I was like, man, this would be really good for people of all professions going through this, you know, to create self-awareness and stuff. I would definitely have to um, revamp it and make it look a little bit better in, in terms um, and use maybe a different program to write out what I have but I think it would be useful for people but who knows <laughs> yeah I think it'd be awesome it'd be a great resource especially for I, I think <laughs> especially for uh, like students going into placement where they haven't especially if they are having lower ASA scores they probably haven't sort of seen a lot of the stuff that they may come across on placement like I know if I'd seen some of the stuff that I've seen since on placement, there yeah, probably wouldn't be an OT. Just be like, no, nah, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. But again, that was again. Yeah, there's there's I'm, times where maybe I'm... I was just sheltered. I don't know, but um, since then, it's, it's fine. Like I can, I've worked, I've got the skill set to work through it, and I understand. Like, I think understanding behavior is a big part of some of the stuff that I've seen. So if you can understand why it's happening and realize that, you know, sometimes it's not a logical or conscious decision, um, that that tends to, to right. help in processing it. Oh, yes. I totally agree. But, yeah, I think, I think that kind of resource, you could almost tailor it to different populations and it would be, it'd be super valuable. Just well, thank you. sowing I think that I might seed do that. for you. <laughs> well, thank you. You'll have to get a uh, 5% royalty on it. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm okay. It's all yours. Okay, wow. It's a gift. Well, thank you. Oh, the gift of my random <laughs> well, ideas. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, oh, that, I've, I've learned a ton. That's really really interesting so how are you hoping to so when you're finished and you start working is this a field that you're now interested in this sort of burnout and i guess almost change team culture kind of thing or are you still uh looking at the the oncology side of things specifically oh yeah i think if i were to get in the oncology field i would definitely um, whatever I'm learning right now or whatever I, the material that I'll have at the end, I hope to bring to whatever job that I'm in and help my future colleagues, because let's be honest, we all go through burnout. And especially if we ever go through a pandemic again, which I hope we never do. Um, Amen to that. I think this would be super useful to help yeah, to our coworkers and to, you know, family members who are going through caregiver burnout. Um, goodness gracious, they go through a lot. Um, and so I think this information would be helpful. Um, and I hope to, you know, give it to anybody who needs it and also practice it myself because I'd be, you know, a hypocrite if I didn't. So um, I've learned a lot through the process and I've changed my habits and definitely created more occupational balance in my life. That's for sure. 
So if people are looking for you on social media, where can they track you down? Where can they find you? And find out when you're going to release all these amazing resources. That's right. You can find me at um, Patches of OT um, on Instagram. And I also have a page for my service dog in training. If you'd like to see her in action, it's called um, Thistle in Training on Instagram as well. And that's Thistle like the weed. <laughs> She's very cute. So nothing like the weed. She's so cute. No, I know. She is not like anything like her, the weed, but yes, yeah, she's very cute. <laughs> awesome. I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad other people think she's cute. She I'm is. not bi- I'm like, I was half expecting you to bring her along today, but okay, that's fine. <laughs> I know. She's actually sleeping. <laughs> she's wreaking havoc outside somewhere. Puppy now. Yeah, nice. Yeah, she's probably tearing up our carpet. <laughs> that's what puppies do best. It's all good. So yeah, thanks so much for for coming along, dude. It's been it's been really good to chat in general uh, and, and tap into your your experience. It's been really fun. Well, thank you so much, Brock, for having me. I'm so honored to be on here. I like listen to your podcast all the time, and you know, see you doing your great work. So I'm like, wow, you want to have me? That's amazing. <laughs> If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.